Okay, so this morning I just wanted to think a little bit with you about the idea of providence. Uh, providence is this theological term that uh, in its popular uh, or religious uh, definition kind of means some power greater than yourself is looking out for you, is going to make your life better, right? Is going to maybe make your football team win or uh, vanquish your enemies or bring health to your family or whatever it is. So from the, the ridiculous to the sublime. Um, so that's the kind of notion of providence. And I'm thinking about this a little bit because I've been uh, looking a little bit at Joel Osteen uh, for some reason. Um, and I've been watching what he does. And his whole thing is around this notion of providence. I mean, it seems like his, his central message is that things might be going terribly. Uh, you may be in financial difficulties. You may be facing illness. You may be facing unemployment. Uh, you may be uh, facing violence, but good things are coming. Have trust and have faith and things are going to work out for you. You will get that money. You will get that peace. You will get that new house or you will get that health. Uh, you know, basically around the corner, things are going to get better. Now, there's, there's sacred and secular versions of this. Um, it's not primarily a... Uh, religious notion, or if it's religious, it's religious in its sacred and secular forms. Um, what, one thing you can see in this is uh, an insomniac. So if you have trouble sleeping, um, well, no, I'll come back to that in a second. Right? There's, there's two things about this notion that, that I want to pick up on. <clears throat> the first is that providence um, works on this idea that if you're a, your external environment can be rendered neutral and can be rendered tension-free. Your environment can be rendered um, into some sort of peace and prosperity. Um, and of course, we all have elements of this. Like if you go on holiday, you experience a certain level of the loss of tension and of peace. So this notion of providence is that you can experience this in a kind of prolonged way. Now, there are certain issues with that. Um, I don't want to get into them in too much depth, but uh, the idea that there is a neutral, non-antagonistic way of living, while it can be very appealing to us, uh, is potentially even worse than having tension in your life. So, for example, uh, sci-fi is very good at this. There's an old sci-fi movie called Equilibrium, where society has taken out everything related to death drive, anything that causes tension and passion in your life. So great music, great art, uh, you know, great love. Uh, all of these things have been basically taken out of society and have been banned. And this is a kind of like non-antagonistic, neutral structure for society. But of course, the idea is that this is actually even more oppressive than what was before it. So of course, the justification for this world is that you know, there are no wars, there's no violence, uh, there's no um, poverty. But actually in the loss of all of that violence, something else has been lost as well. So the film kind of explores that in a popular, a popular way. So one is, you know, can we actually have, not even can we have this 
non-antagonistic type of life, but actually would it be something we would even like, that we should even idolize? Uh, and uh, that's something we can pick up in other talks, and I've, I've looked at elsewhere. But um, a second thing about this notion is that even if it was possible to vanquish all your enemies and have a type of utopic life, uh, even if that was something that was good, um, that doesn't do anything for a person who is suffering from anxiety. And that is the type of person who responds to the message of Joel Osteen. Um, a person who feels uh, a tension within their life that things aren't going right. What we do when we feel like that is we fantasize that there is some external thing that will fix it. But actually, the real issue is internal. So to go back to the insomniac, uh, if you have trouble sleeping, you might think that if you could only have a perfectly black room, that would be great. So you get curtains and then you maybe get uh, two sets of curtains that completely black things out. And then you wear an eye mask and then you tie something around your head, right? To try to make everything pitch black to help you sleep. And then sound, even the slightest sound can be terrible. So you try to live somewhere that's quiet. You get double glazing, you get triple glazing. You, you try to make sure that there is no signs whatsoever. So what happens is the insomniac starts to get into this spiral where they're trying to create the perfect external circumstances that will help them to sleep. It might be then they also have to have a shower just before they go to bed. They have to brush their teeth a certain amount of time. Um, they, more and more rituals are added, right? So at first, it might be only one or two things you have to do, but maybe after five years, there's a whole bunch of things. You have to listen to a certain podcast or have a certain white noise playing, whatever it is. And the idea is that the external environment is the problem. But with insomnia, you notice that actually there's something internal going on. Like there's, there's never an ability to make your external circumstance perfect. There will always be a creak. There will always be a little bit of light. Or if you do get complete silence, then you'll hear your own blood rushing through your body, right? There's like this sense in which there'll always be something for your anxiety to latch onto. So no matter how perfect your external environment, if your internal environment is in turmoil, nothing will change. And, you're, and what you'll do is you will seek something, anything to attach that anxiety to. So maybe it's the, the hum of a refrigerator, or you hear a creak in your cupboard and you think there's somebody in there, or you hear a tap on your window and you think someone's trying to break in, or you're scared that there's something under the bed. If you put your foot down, it will grab you. So what happens is if your internal environment is, is, is problematic, then no amount of kind of this superstitious providence will help. It will appeal to us on a conscious level, but it will always fail. Now, I want to bracket out for a second um, the question of what happens if your external circumstances are bad. I want to come back to that at the end of this chat. But for the meantime, let's bracket that out. And let's say, well, what happens then um, do we have to abandon this notion of providence or is there something deeper going on within it? <clears throat> and 
this is where I think we get to the, more, the deeper notion of providence, which is not the idea that everything will be okay if our external circumstances are good, but rather that we get to the point that even when our external circumstances are in turmoil, we have a certain composure, a certain perspective on the world, a certain ex- ex- um, experience of depth in the world, and even a certain peace, right? So everything's not okay in the external world, but yet you're still okay. So to return to the insomniac, you get to the point where actually you can, you can tolerate a certain amount of noise, a certain amount of light, uh, not even tolerate it, but actually come to, to like it. You know, you don't mind hearing the noise in the morning of people going to work or you don't mind a little bit of light coming in because it helps you wake up. So your external circumstances aren't perfect at all necessarily, but in the midst of it, you're, you're okay. You can, you can cope. Um, now, getting to this place, uh, this doesn't mean that there are, are not external things that are problematic. There are many external issues in, in our world that are difficult and that are bad. But if you can get to this place of inner peace, inner joy, uh, I think three things kind of come out of this. Uh, the first is that you will see fewer monsters in the world. Uh, you know, again, with the insomniac or the person who's got anxiety when at night, everything is a monster. Everything is a thief. Everything is somebody trying to break in, right? When you are able to find a way to manage your anxiety and tolerate it, then you don't see monsters everywhere, behind the, behind the cupboard or under the bed or anywhere else. And so in the world you will see fewer monsters. And of course, there still are some. So you might, you might previously have had anxiety about somebody you know, breaking into your house when you're in bed. And then you overcome the anxiety of it. But then maybe one day you do hear something upstairs, some breaking glass. And then it's perfectly fine to go, oh my goodness, I get a little bit worried and, and act. But the point is you're not doing that every night. You're not basically frying your body uh, through this constant anxiety that has to latch on to something. Secondly, you won't make mountains out of molehills, right? So whenever you have anxiety in your life, small things become huge. And we, we all see this, you know, again, like you're having an argument about something very small, but it actually in your mind becomes massive. And even though you know it's not massive, you cannot help but experience it as massive. So everywhere you look, there are mountains. And whenever there's a mountain in your way, the only way to get rid of it is explosives, you know? But, but without the anxiety, things become smaller, much smaller sometimes, and then much more manageable. And you can do something about it. You can actually engage with those problems and with those issues. But when those issues become so big, your world becomes good versus evil. You know, you, you enter like a Star Wars universe where, you know, there's, there's, there's no um, uh, subtlety, right? And you kind of, you, you, you don't see the other as someone that you can critically and antagonistically engage with but rather as an enemy that has to be utterly destroyed and got rid of. 
And then thirdly, if you're able to find this experience of providence, this experience of being calm in the midst of life in all its antagonisms and difficulties, then uh, you, will, you will not need your enemies. You will not need to find problems. See, the issue, say, with the insomniac who hears a, a creak in the, in the house and thinks it's a murderer, is that actually, even though they think they don't want that, in some weird respect, they do. Um, because that is a way to attach this anxiety to something concrete rather than have to look at it and deal with it and work through it. You can say, oh, it's because of, it's because of that noise. That's why I'm anxious rather than the noise is just what your anxiety is binding to in order to be able to somehow manage it. So in a weird sense, we often need our enemies when we have anxiety because we want to attach it to something. We want to have a reason for our anxiety and we also want to have an easy way out of it. Well, if only we get rid of that thing, then we'll feel better. When actually... We need that thing because it helps us bind our anxiety rather than to, to look at it. I mean, it's a strange thing. If you're, if you're say, a writer and you, you've just written a, a book or a, a, a play and you look at all the reviews and say there are 21 reviews and 20 of them are good and one of them is bad and you find yourself going to the one bad review and obsessing over that, See, in a sense, that makes no sense. If you were an alien from outer space, that wouldn't make any sense logically. You'd be like, well, there's 20 reviews that say it was great. So, you know, the one review, you can water that down. It means almost nothing. Um, it also doesn't make sense from a utilitarian perspective where, where humans tend to maximize their pleasure. Um, that's a, you can critique that idea. But, you know, on a day-to-day on -day basis, we try to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain. And you go, well, why would humans then go to the very thing that causes them more pain and more suffering, the one review that's bad, rather than the 20 that are good? But this movement allows us to bind our anxiety and say that's the problem, that's the reason. If only I had 21 good reviews, then everything would be great. Um, a lot of famous people have these problems because a lot of famous people are driven to fame because they want the external world to love them, to see them, to value them. Um, but of course, the problem is even if you're very, very well liked as a famous person, if you have that anxiety, you'll always find that small number of people who don't like you. And even if everybody liked you, you'd be anxious that they're going to turn on you, right? The anxiety would always find a way of coming back in. So the movement of providence, I think, is we move from a superstitious notion that, that you know, there's a way of getting our external circumstances so good that we feel wonderful. We get rid of that, and then we enter what I think is a deeper understanding, which is, I think, actually a lot of the symbolism of providence points to this which is the idea that you can find a peace in your life. You can find a way of making peace with your ghosts, with your difficulties, with the, the, the anxieties that are part of being human. Uh, this is something I looked at in my book study on the courage to be with Paul Tillich, where there's a, he talks about a certain anxiety that is pathological, which means it's connected to certain things that have happened in your life. 
But then there's anxiety that is ontological, which means there's a certain anxiety that is just part of life itself that we all have to deal with. And as we're able to have the courage to, to face those anxieties, both pathological and ontological, we find that we are more able to live in a world that is more chaotic than we might like. <laughs> um, it allows us to find peace within that, but also to, to confront the real problems, neither creating monsters that aren't there, neither making mountains out of molehills, or actually requiring the enemies that we fight. Just like in school where some, some kids, they need an enemy, they need to find someone to slag off, to dislike, because that's their way of attaching their anxiety to an external cause rather than facing what's going on internally. Okay, so there's some thoughts on Joel Osteen and uh, anxiety and providence. Let's see if you have any questions for me. Um, okay, there's lots of stuff here, so I'm not going to be able to, to go through it all, but I'm going to flick down and see if anything grabs my attention. Um, oh, it's all moving so fast. Uh, Uh, William Benson asked an interesting question. Um, I think I know what you're, you're saying. Is truth a disinfectant to our desires or does it lead us further down the rabbit hole? William, I think what you're saying is, yes, so does truth as in does coming to know this stuff actually help or, or is it relatively powerless? Um, I think that's a great question. Hopefully I'm kind of getting your question right. And I would say, and I think you're implying this in your question, the latter, that actually knowing about anxiety doesn't help much at all. I have a good friend who, smartest person I've ever met. She's a genius, like a genius level IQ, incredible, uh, you know, education and all that. And she understands that her anxieties are unreasonable. She also has incredible grasp over them and even where they come from. But still, they cause anxiety and at night, no matter how, and, the, and, being, and having that level of insight and intelligence, I think helps her a fair amount, but it's not enough. There's, what we need is uh, communities of grace where we experience acceptance, where we can learn to very gradually accept ourselves, that we can have rituals uh, like music and art that can help unlock certain parts of ourselves. And I suppose you could call those truth in a different way, but it's a kind of, it's, a, it's the idea that understanding alone isn't enough to get to this place of providence. It's an existential experience. Um, so yeah. Uh, Oh, lots of stuff here. Um, okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna randomly read one because as I read them and I realize there's a lot of silence and you're all gonna get bored and walk away. So, uh, somebody is it? I'm not gonna. I'm terrible at pronouncing names. If you notice this, it's so bad. But um, as I often say, try to pronounce in Irish names. If you're just reading them, it's a, that would be impossible. But J, uh, J M. Uh, Carico, 
if that's right. You said started start as an evangelical, then found Tolstoy. Well, that's good. Yeah, Tolstoy, can't go wrong there. Then Rob Bell. Yep, love Rob Bell. Great friend, wonderful guy who has, uh, I think, really helped you know, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people. <laughs> Incredible. Um, and then Peter Rollins. Yep, Tolstoy, Rob Bell, and then you find the best. <laughs> I'm honored to be in, in, that, in that bunch. Um, and that started a transition also aligned with my conversion from fundamentalism to liberal to radical. Can't thank you enough. Oh, thanks, Alison. Thank you. Um, uh, and he says, check out um, the podcast on Against Everything, if you can. Against Everything. Oh, yeah, that's my friend Connor Habib. Did you listen to that? Yeah, Connor Habib um, is a good friend of mine. I also lived with him for a year. And he has a podcast called Against Everything. And um, I was on it. Uh, it must have been about a couple of months ago. So, yeah, definitely check out, check out Against Everything. Um, yeah, lots of people just saying they're looking forward to catching up at various events. Here on the tour, I always hang about at the end, usually at the beginning as well. So I always want to say hi to people who have been on this journey with me, who have been reading my work, especially those of you who are kind enough to support me in my work. Because to be honest with you, I couldn't do what I do without your support. So please come say hi to me if you're at any of the events um, and, uh, you know, uh, I'd love to, I'd love to at least be able to shake your hand. So thank you. Um, oh yeah, let's read this one. Uh, Leonard, uh, Vanderberg, the concept of providence creates the environment of bigotry and favoritism. Those who have it are with God, those without it. Yes, exactly that. The notion of providence that I think I call superstitious providence, um, is exactly that. It's the idea that there's some higher power and they're looking out for you and not the people around you. And it's, it's a very, it's a very uh, appealing notion. And I think it's very important to sit with it and, and work out why we think it. I, I know someone who their daughter was kidnapped. Uh, I can't remember where it was, but she was kidnapped. Uh, they find her within 48 hours. And, you know, he read this as provenance. But when, as the story went on, it turned out that this gang had kidnapped a number of people and the others had been killed. So she was the only one who survived. This is exactly what you're talking about is, I understand that as a father, he, he felt blessed and he felt that, you know, the greatest suffering of his life turned out to, to uh, you know, it, it turned out that she was returned. But the, but the issue there is that, that by saying that, it was almost like, well, when, what about the other families uh, when their children didn't survive? And while he was not trying to say, oh, God loves me and doesn't love those people, um, there is something about that position where that kind of comes out of it. So yeah, that, I think Paul Tillich would talk about the symbolism of of religious providence is actually designed to point us to something much deeper. And that's what I'm kind of talking about here is I think that, that providence has some, has a meaning, but as an existential concept, providence meaning that we can find peace in our lives in the midst of the craziness of existence. But that peace is not connected to one being, be person being more favored than another um, at all. It's something that is very difficult for all of us to get, 
And sometimes we have to just be lucky enough to be in environments where that is encouraged. Uh, and, and if we don't have those environments, to try to seek them out, to seek out those places of grace, uh, wherever they are in our lives, so that we can, we can kind of begin to overcome anxiety in its pathological and ontological forms. For Tillich, uh, psychoanalysis is designed to deal with pathological anxiety primarily, and uh, the kind of theology is designed to deal with ontological anxiety primarily, but they overlap, you know, and uh, uh, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, they very much overlap. All righty. Listen, thank you so much for checking in. I apologize again that I haven't uh, done too many of these live videos for a while, but uh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll get back into it again. Thanks very much for checking it out, and um, I'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Bye-bye.